how to start. Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're modern. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Jeffrey Addis and Will Matthews originally contacted the Jim Henson Company to pitch a sequel idea for Labyrinth. And while that idea wasn't in the cards, even for a pitch meeting, they were invited to come up with an idea for Dark Crystal, a prequel. The official description for the 10-episode Netflix show reads, Returns to the world of Thra, where three Gelfing discover the horrifying secret behind the Skeksis power and set out to ignite the fires of the rebellion and save their world. To create this world, the screenwriters and creators spent a great deal of time on the opening sequence, making sure audiences new and old would understand the 30 years of history prior to the 10-episode story, but also the layered world and class system. In this interview, the writers discuss telling big stories in an economical fashion, writing for fans new and old, how they figured out how to run a writer's room, and how to count mouth flaps. If you enjoyed this interview, you can also read the print version on Creative Screenwriting's website and look for our interview with the director of the series coming soon. So we uh, actually, in a fit of, uh, I don't know, hubris, uh, we, we had an idea for a, a Labyrinth sequel. And so our agent called up Henson and said, hey, these two uh, guys have an idea for a sequel to Labyrinth. And they said, well, we're not really doing that. but..." It just happened to be when they were taking pitches for Dark Crystal. And I grew up loving the Dark Crystal. I grew up loving Henson. Um, just, it was a thing that I just watched over and over and over again. I had that VHS copy. And so when they said, what about Dark Crystal? We said, heck yes. So we just went in and pitched our little hearts out. And we actually thought it was a sequel movie the first time we went in. It sat down with them. And so then they said, we're very excited to talk about our prequel series. And we were like, sure, sure, sure. Can we come back? Uh, and so we came back a week later and Louis Leterrier was in that meeting. And from that first pitch, a lot of what you, a lot of that pitch is in the show. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Um, and they gave us a lot of resources and materials. Henson has obviously been developing this world for a long time. 
So they made all that stuff available to us and sort of like a general idea of like, here's kind of what we think the show is. But then they gave us a lot of space to create, which was extraordinarily kind of them. What was the general take? So I know you guys are big fans. A lot of the writers are big fans. People came back from like the puppeteers and, and Henson's family came back from the original. Did you write this kind of for both sides, like the original fans and also newcomers? And how did you kind of find that balance to do that? The short answer is yes. We wrote for everybody. The long answer is that's pretty hard to do. So our perspective was sort of represented by me and Jeff. Jeff is that hardcore, long-term fan. And I am a fan, but I was more of a Labyrinth fan than a Dark Crystal fan because it scared me so much as a kid. So in the two of us, you have that dichotomy represented, those who are true believers and those who are a little more new to the property. So we were able to write in that way for each other and therefore for everyone. So it was something we thought about a lot. You want to get the details right for the fans. But you don't want to include so many details that you overwhelm new audiences. The goal is to invite people into this rich world, not hand them a bunch of homework they have to do before they can have fun. So, yeah, we thought about that, that balance a lot. We thought about it a lot in the writer's room. Our writer's assistant on the show was very new to the world, and so her perspective was very useful. Um, and then other writers were more familiar, and so their perspective was very useful. You can even see it in what we talked about with when we designed our heroes of the story. We have three heroes who are all facing what they don't realize yet is one central problem. That central problem, because of 30 years of history, is inherently complex. These things used to be one thing, but they split after they cracked this crystal. And you say, well, they split as a result of cracking the crystal. And you go, well, not technically. It was like 10 minutes later, just to make it extra hard. And so what we really thought about was each of these three characters represents a different way of viewing the central problem, comes at it from a different angle, but also those three characters are each of different station within the world. So that you can see Deet, who's the lowest, Rianne, who's the company man, and Brea, who is uh, royalty. So that at the same time that we're introducing one problem through three different perspectives, we are also introducing the world through three different perspectives that allow you to see the full stratification of how the society is structured. So everything, even right down to the initial decisions we made about the characters, was based on how do we make this easier for the audience to understand and connect to. So you kind of, everyone can kind of see some relatability. Like when they originally wrote aliens, they were, well, we don't understand, you know, space and that kind of stuff. We understand that there's different levels of workers. So that kind of idea basically is what you're saying. Yes, that's exactly it. It's like grab them things, give them things that they understand. Deet, her introduction, she has the shortest introduction of Brea or Rianne, but you connect with her right away by virtue of her goodness. Where there's a bit of the Disney princess in there, right? She's flying, she's singing, she's collecting the moss, she's feeding the animals. So right away you're connecting to this sort of pastoral idea. The dark crystal of it all is it's deep underground and it's in the dark and she's feeding giant worms. Disney doesn't do that. 
but her her world is the smallest. And so if her world is the smallest, her introduction can also be the smallest because you can understand it the fastest. But the big ideas are still relatable. You know, the Skeksis have the crazy backstory and they have all the different names and there's so much lore. But hopefully you understand pretty quickly uh, these guys are selfish and they say they are working in the Gelfling's best interest, but clearly they're not. I think we can all agree. Uh, I think we can all relate to a corrupt ruling class. How much thought, to kind of expand on that, how much thought goes into the first, you know, three to five minutes where you're kind of explaining all of this? Um, and what did you look to maybe to kind of help you, you know, step back and write that and make it clear for everyone? The first five minutes are by far the thing that we wrote and rewrote probably the most, more so than the battle at the end. Um, it was the most difficult because you have an extraordinary amount of world to do, to set up. And uh, thank goodness we had Louis Leterrier. But I think that the the opening narration was the last thing that we locked, locked. I think that went right up to the end. We were tweaking that. Oh, yeah. And even when we locked it, we locked more than one version. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because and it, was, it was the most important. It was the most contentious. It was the highest stakes five minutes of the series because it's the beginning. And so there were a lot of back and forths about how much lore to include, in what order, how to do that visually as well as through a monologue. Um, it was, it was, Louis said, I think in the first day of the writer's room, Louis said, uh, the opening will be the hardest thing we work on and it will be the thing we work on last. I mean, all the way up to the last moment. And three years later, he was right. <laughs> he, he called, this is Jeff, he called his shop in, well, he was, he called that shop perfectly. <laughs> He was 100% right. I remember the day he said that sitting in the writer's room, and I remember it being the last thing that we were still sending in rewrites on and still recording different versions, and I was doing recording different versions at different points. I was in there, you know, recording multiple versions that we were disseminating and doing notes on. It was crazy. So I'm familiar with other shows, but was this more like a movie? Did you have it, com you know, for the most part, completely written before they started building sets? Or did they, you know, start filming episode one and you're still writing episode eight or something like that? We had 10 scripts pretty much done as pre-production was rolling. The big difference here, though, of what makes it so difficult is that because there's so much labor involved in building these puppets and creatures and sets, we were starting to build at the same time that we were writing. That had to happen simultaneously. So by the time we started shooting, all 10 scripts were done. And then I was on set and Will was working from LA and we were continuing rewrites through, we were doing rewrites through, but we had 10 scripts when we, when we started shooting. But we did, we were at the same time that we were writing designing creatures. So we would get artwork Everybody was giving notes. We would sometimes adjust scripts to artwork, to great ideas. You had Brian Froud creating concepts. So when we were in the midst of it, after we had written the pilot, but during the writing of the, the next nine episodes, that was very much a, a sort of big soup feel. 
what are some of the limits that might be different in writing something like this? So normally we, you know, we talk to someone, they write a movie, the actor has his take, the director has their take. Do, do you, you say some of this in the making of, but like, are you describing if a forearm puppet shoots a bow and arrow, how he shoots it or the balcony, what the balcony looks like, or, or are you just t- kind of leaving it open to them? Um, the good news about Dark Crystal is that you have so many geniuses working on the same show at once. And so, yes, it takes a lot of people. It's, it's more intensive maybe than some other shows. But because of the love of Jim Henson and the love of the property, all of the chefs in the kitchen are five-star Michelin folks. So you listen to them. So you come in with, you know, hey, we want this uh, mystic to shoot this bow and arrow. And then... You know, Peter, the head of the shop, says, um, well, when you say bow and arrow, here's six different kinds. Here's an atlatl. Here's a different way of thinking about, like, what is a bow, really? And you're like, oh, my God, I just said bow and arrow, and this guy's writing poetry. And so, yes, different ways of moving the puppets, different ways of building the puppets so that you can move them in different ways. All of that affects the writing, but almost universally, it always makes the writing better. And then once you get on set, the puppeteers are rehearsing and you're looking at different ways. At one point, one of the mystics almost did use it. He's right, an adelaide, as opposed to a, a bow. And then we're like, okay, we'll do a bow. It kind of can work like this. And then you actually get there on set and the puppeteers have to figure out how to actually make that work. And particularly the mystic shooting a bow, there was a lot of rehearsal. It was, those mystics were incredibly hard on the performers. And so there was a lot of discussion of of how that goes so you can see how it's sort of an evolution over the process and at some point uh you wind up with how it's going to be but basically it's very rare that anyone says flat out no or here's a limit we can't do that because everyone loves it so much and they're also good at their jobs usually it starts with let's there are different ways to do that. How can we do that quickly? Or how can we do that in a way that doesn't cost too much or in a way that's physically possible for the puppeteers? But it's very rare you come up against a hard wall. And when you do, Louis Leterrier swoops in and says, no, 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 here's how we get over that wall. And so something like the carriage chase, I mean, that's an impossible sequence. And Louis never doubted that it could be done from the beginning. And so it was done. Was there any other bigger limitations in the beginning? I think in the making of, they said that the original movie had around 30 sets and this one had more like 80. Is is that true? Do you feel obligated to, to use things more than once or how did that kind of work? So we had 88 or 89 sets, um, which is a lot. Uh, and all of them were on raised platforms, specially built. It was a very classic old school feel when you walked into our warehouses big, giant wooden sets. It was really cool. So many sets you go to now, they're just big green boxes. They're like, welcome to our set. You walk in ours, you can walk through the hallways of the Crystal Castle. You can walk through the endless forest. It's tangible. It's built. It's lit. It's gorgeous. Uh, In terms of reusing sets, there was some times, but but yes, but I guess that was just a natural instinct, right? You have these sets. They are gorgeous. These characters live in these places. Um, and so, but there were some sets, like uh, in episode seven, when we get to um, 
when we get to the Circle of the Suns, you really only use that set for that one episode. And that's really it. Um, so, yes, we did try to reuse sets if, if there's places they could be used. But also, uh, we built a giant set for Episode 7 that you don't see ever again after that. Was there any other just unexpected difficulties that you faced? And maybe how did you kind of come over those, uh, maybe specifically with plot or something in the writing process? Well, my biggest difficulty was Jeff being in London for a year, and I just missed him. <laughs> and I, my Je- as Jeff, I missed Will and was sleepy. Um, no, I, I'm trying to think of, I can tell you that the episodes that were, I think episode five, the opening narration and what that was going to look like uh, was very difficult. Episode five changed forms a lot. We knew we had designed the whole series as uh, sort of two two bell shapes that came together. So it started narrow, widen out. They would get narrow again at five when all of our heroes would come together. It would widen out as they split up over the back half and then come back together in episode 10. So we knew that five and 10 were sort of the choke points, right? A lot of plot was going to happen there. Five was the most difficult. We had all these characters running around. We knew that they all needed to come into the dream space at the same time. But where they were kept shifting. How they were going to get there kept shifting. There were versions of episode five that were a straight-up farce that we were kicking around at one point, where everybody would be running around the castle, sort of like an episode of Frasier. And you can still see a little bit of that in there when they're running into each other in the hallways. Um, those those were the, the hardest things, as, as I recall. The battle was difficult because you have a lot of moving pieces, and shooting puppet action is very tricky. So we were designing things to be self-contained, slightly separate, right? Things that we could shoot easier. The storyline with the uh, with the scientists, for example. How much we were going to cut away and use that. Uh, but we needed some of that stuff because the battle was so time-consuming when you had all of those puppets all at once on on the field. And so it was a lot of balancing of things like that. So I, w- I would say the opening five and ten were really the trickiest. And we were very lucky that we had such an amazing writer's room. Uh, we were very lucky that uh, Javier Grigio, Mark Swatch came on board because we had never been in a writer's room, much less run one. So having Javi there while we were running the room was 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 life-changing. Javi has become a dear, dear friend. Um, and so we were, we were extraordinarily lucky. But, but it was the hardest thing that we've ever done. It's a dense world, a dense story. Um, a lot of mythology, comic books, movies, uh, YA novels, all trying tying together and talking to each other. A, a big uh, a big difficulty was the YA novel because that was being had started. The first one I believe had been written. The second one had, was a draft. The next two hadn't been written, and they're all sort of being developed simultaneously as we're in the writers' room. And so there'd be times that we would want to do something, but it would break the book. And so you'd have to find your moments of we're going to bend the book without breaking it because we need what we need to do in the TV show is fundamentally different than what needs to happen in a novel series. And the J.M. Lee, who wrote the books, was in our writer's room and wrote episode two. So 
it was very difficult for him as well. So that was a big difficulty, was holding all of these disparate threads of story and trying to bind them all together into one cohesive tale that, like you were saying, somebody who didn't read the YA novels, who didn't watch the original movie, who didn't read the manga or the comic books, could watch and enjoy and not realize that there were all of these other things out there if they wanted to get into this wider universe, just waiting to be explored. If there's one piece of advice uh, as far as like kind of sealing the deal and getting this job, obviously you're very enthusiastic. You had this other idea for a possible Labyrinth sequel, but what advice might you give for people just who get in the room besides having a great idea, if there is anything besides that? I would say lead with love. When you're, when you're doing a fan property, you, you got to come as a fan first. But that's only the start. Then you have to build something new, including all the pieces you're given. So the balance between honoring what's come before and striking out in a new direction, that's the tightrope. But if you can walk it, um, you can have a show. I think that's right. And I think, I think what you discover is make sure that the bones of whatever you're doing are so strong. Make sure that you can, you can bend those bones. You can jump on them. You can rearrange them and they won't break because that will carry you through everything. You can, you, we can change the nose or swap out the eyes. How the character gets from point A to point B can change. But we know why they have to get at point B because of what that means emotionally. And so if you, that's the bones. That's the arc. That's the story. And, um, and then everything else is, is a window dressing. So you mentioned, like, you, you would talk about a bow and arrow. They would say, what kind? How might this change your writing going forward? If you're to write something live action, are you going to think a lot more about character and the way they move and think and little details? Part of the fun has been uh, being able to write people uh, picking things up, putting things down, handing things to each other. That's just been a gift. Uh, that is extraordinarily time-consuming with puppets. Um, I think what it's changed for me is I have a much deeper understanding of the process on the other side of this. Having been through 10 months of shooting, having been through post-production, having worked with Dean Egg, having worked with the Creature Shop, having worked with these amazing puppeteers, I just have a much stronger sense of what is reasonable and budgetary, budget-friendly. And so part of the thing that, that we've been experimenting with in our writing now is finding ways of telling big stories in, in an economical fashion where a writer really does understand the back half of this process. And maybe that's limiting and you don't want to think that way and you want to tell the big world. But what we love is the idea of telling big stories however we can. And so those big stories aren't always the easiest to tell. And it, it helps to, to know that world, to understand that world, to be able to say to a producer or a studio like, no, no, no we know this. We, we, we know that we can bring this in, this big, crazy movie at a, at a certain level, at a certain budget and still have it be uh, everything you want it to be. What about you, Will? Uh, I, think, I think, of course, all that's right. Um, just happened the other day. We were pitching a movie, and we were talking about then the dragon attacks, and you could just see the producer's eyes get big. I'm like, no, 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 no. The dragon attacks briefly, and then we <laughs> cut away. And, <laughs> and you could just see his blood pressure go right down. 
um, but in terms of the, the writing for me, I think it's just the idea that there is such a long process is freeing for the writing because the draft is not the final draft. In fact, it's nowhere near the final draft. And so in a way you can see that road is so long, it's daunting, or you can see that road is so long, it's freeing. There are a lot of opportunities to make this thing better. Knowing where you are in the process, I think can inform the writing in a way that, that isn't cynical or limiting, it's, it's encouraging. So at the beginning, you're writing for yourself and then maybe you're, you know, you're writing for attaching a director or a star, or, you know, there, and then you start writing for budget reasons. And that doesn't make things worse. It makes things more specific. So I, I think appreciating just how long the process is frees you up from worrying about having to get everything exact and perfect on the first draft because, I mean, it's just going to change so much. Let it change. There was there was one whole part of this that's worth mentioning of what's really hard, which is the 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 writing it again for when we, so we shot everything live, right? The puppeteers do the voices. Then it's time to go into the recording studio, and we have to have this amazing cast, and they have to match what's been done by the puppeteers. And not only do they have to match, but we've rewritten between what the puppeteers did. And when we get into that room, because sometimes we're using parts of different cuts. Sometimes somebody, there's a mouth wagging in the background. Sometimes a puppeteer improvised or did something that we can't use. For example, we don't use pronouns for the Skeksis, gender pronouns. So maybe somebody threw a he in, that's got to go. So we have to rewrite. And we could also watch the whole thing and rewrite it again to what do we need to clear up? How can we make this even better? So we broke the whole script down into spreadsheets, 10,000 lines we re-recorded, 10,000, one by one, multiple takes for each one over months. Um, the, our sound team was amazing. But all of those spreadsheets uh, I, I went through, my assistant Tim went through, our sound department went through, uh, James, uh, these amazing people, line by line, and we would script to the uh, wags of the mouse. So even if we were watching a scene, like say the sketchy sitting around in, um, in the dining hall, right? Anytime that any one of those Skeksis in the backgrounds were moving their mouths or uh, shaking their head, we would slag it, we would write for it, and we would count the mouth flaps and write for it so that it all felt right on. And just coordinating, I mean, that was months months of prep work and then months of recording. Um, and we were recording in multiple countries at the same time. Uh, and I was over in England through, through a lot of that. So it was, it was really intense. It was really intense. And any time that the cut would change or something would be tweaked, we would have to flag it and rewrite for it. Because yeah. now this because little Jeff, shot would change. When Jeff says matching or mouth flaps, he's talking about syllables. So not only are you trying to write the poetic words that add magistry to this world or convey emotion or plot or story, now you're being told by the screen you have four syllables. You don't have five. You have four syllables. So figure out how to use two two-syllable words, or maybe you can cheat and make one of the syllables a sigh, but probably not. So that level of specificity, you better know the bones of your story. 
because you're going to get thrown some weird versions and you need to know what's the through line. Now, this is Jeff. What's great is you could create new moments as well. We could steal shots. You'll never even know because it's just a, pu a puppet moving its mouth, right? So we could steal and create something. We could lengthen speeches or shorten them as we needed to. Um, but for example, Rianne's speech about his father in episode uh, six around the funeral, we had to write to the cut. So that speech was written to match the syllables. And, and, to change, and to change some of the theme, because as we had been making and, and shooting and editing together the show, uh, I think it was Louis who, uh, there was something about yeah. the, the heart of that speech also had to change a little bit. So now you're having to write an emotional speech about losing your father. You have to do it to the syllables that someone else hands you. And you better do it in two days because that's when you're going to get the star to record it. Uh, I, I think I think Javi wrote that speech and then Jeff rewrote it. I mean, it it takes a real team yeah, to do I, that level of work. And I think I did the final rewrite on that while we were in the booth with Taryn. Is more mathematic and poetic, yeah. Yeah, and that's uh, that's some high level fun. Write the script <laughs> while the movie star is watching it. From three feet away. Uh, <laughs> thank goodness he really loved it, and he was awesome. And we were extraordinarily lucky. Well, and then there's the opposite. Then there's, you know, you have a major talent like Eddie Izzard, and he's like, uh, anytime the camera is not on Elder <laughs> Kadia, he doesn't have to match, it, ma match any mouth flaps. If the camera isn't on Kadia, Kadia can say whatever Eddie Izzard wants him to say. And so when you have that level of talent, you find a way. Can we cut away? Let's get some more Eddie in there. And that's how we got uh, bugger is the word they say in throw. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Although he says that on camera, he matched the, uh, he matched the slaps. That's how good he is. But that's how we got, are, are you a bug? Something he says off camera as he walks off. It's really funny. Okay. <laughs> Okay, I think we're good. I'm actually um, talking to the director tomorrow. Any, any questions I should ask him? No, Louis was amazing. Louis was in the writer's room with us the whole time. So I would ask him about how he kept us from going down roads with a gentle hand that he knew were dead ends, or how he guided us towards the ones he wanted, or when he let us surprise him. Um, because he was very involved in, in every step I mean obviously in every step of this um, and he's one of he's he's just one of my favorites ever um, I love that guy you know what I'd like to know now that he's been through this whole process he's the only person in the world who has done this he changed how to shoot puppets by using a steady cam he shot directed you know all 10 episodes no one else has done anything like this show and within the show, no one has done anything like Louis done. And so looking back, is there anything he would do differently? And, and I hope the answer is not hire Jeff and Will. <laughs> <laughs> and that is our show. Thanks again for tuning in. If it's your first time, make sure to hit that subscribe button on SoundCloud or iTunes. Also check out the new video essay series on YouTube called creative principles and give us a review. That's one of the best ways to help share these interviews. Thanks again.